Yo, 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 welcome, welcome to another episode with Ignite the Spark Within Podcast. I'm your host, Sebastian Hernandez, and I am here to empower world-class leaders like yourself to create a life on your own terms. On these podcasts, we will be exploring the mysteries of self-mastery, shamanism, mysticism, conscious sexuality, and overcoming depression and anxiety. We'll be interviewing some of my very own tribe members from around the world and share some of our personal stories. We'll be discovering and implementing tools and strategies for living a more fulfilled life. So, join me on this journey of self-discovery and let's ignite that spark within together. A little bit about your host. I am a U.S. Navy veteran, served in the USS Ronald Reagan, was shaman apprentice, an international self-mastery coach, author, and conscious sexuality facilitator. Now, my mission is to support and empower world-class leaders like yourself, reminding you of the impact that you're meant to make in this lifetime. So if you want to learn more, if you bout that life, stay tuned for today's episode. Season 1. Episode 39, Resilience Through Adversity, Finding Magic and Mastery with Cherry Resurrection. Right, welcome, welcome to another week with Ignite the Spark Within Podcast, where we explore all different journeys, especially around the world of self-mastery and really stepping into and embodying our highest self while overcoming obstacles and overcoming challenges. And so today, we have a very special guest. This is a woman that I've had the privilege and honor of knowing for quite some time. We've worked together. We were associates back in 2012. 2013 around that time frame and we went our separate ways and we started to work again together back in 2020 and eventually started working again this year again so this woman has been a woman that I've gotten the privilege to see how she has transformed her life on so many different levels yes from being a multifaceted professional who has woven her experience in the tapestry of healing and empowerment she's a licensed practical nurse with 16 years of experience. She is a Reiki practitioner, a body sculptor, and the founder of Blue Delilah Energy Healing Sculpting. Like her journey of what she's gone through, her personal trials and tribulations, including the challenging divorce that she went through and the heart-wrenching loss of a child. Yes, now this has led her to really step into her greatness by having to deal with the uncomfortable conversations and having to heal where there is need, where there needs to be healing. Yes, so let's dive into this remarkable story and discover how Miss Cherry Resurrection finds magic through her pain. So please help me welcome Cherry Resurrection. Boom! Bastion, it's a pleasure being here today. (laughs) Thank you, Cherry. Cherry, you and I, man, you and I go back. You and I go back how long? This was what, 2013? Yeah, 2013. Wow. All right. So we obviously come from a different from the financial background and we kind of went our separate ways and we kind of got to to intervene again. And we it was, I would say, a lot of divine intervention. Right. And so before we get started on that, I kind of want you to share a little bit about your background, maybe a little bit about your career, like maybe tell us how you got into being a nurse and what inspired you to transition or expand into exploring Reiki and exploring body sculpting. It's, <laughs> it's definitely 
well, as far as nursing, come from a Filipino background. And my parents, you know, excuse me, I got to make fun of the, the, the accent for a bit. They're like, oh, you have to be a nurse. I initially wanted to be a police officer, probably because I wanted to be rebellious. But what really did it for me was, you know, just to kind of appease them in high school, I took a class. It was called Hospital Healthcare Occupation in the ROP program. Mm. And there was this little lady and she was just, she was just lovely. This was the first time I actually connected with somebody. It wasn't just about, you know, because in this program, it was kind of like you were a, a candy striper. A candy striper? A candy striper is where you volunteer in the hospital. Oh, you don't okay. really do procedures and such. But what you do is you, you know, you actually just hop around, clean bedpans, you know, things like that. So, you know, I actually enjoy doing those things because I'm like, you know what, I kind of enjoy nursing. But what really, you know, put a staple on becoming a nurse was that little old lady. She was sitting there and she, you know, she was very anxious about her stay in the hospital. And she asked me to sit down and watch TV with her. And it was, you know, she told me we were talking, we we're just talking about her life. And, you know, right before I left, she told me, I just fell in love with you. You remind me of my grandchild. You have her dimples. This lady was from Iceland. So, you know, her child didn't, her grandchild didn't look like me. But then later on, it made sense. Hmm. You don't have to resemble somebody in order to remind somebody else of a certain person. Maybe it's your spirit. Maybe it's your energy. So it makes more sense now. But that was the reason why I wanted to become a nurse, because I was like, you know, what? there's so many people that are anxious. You know, the medical procedures, the medical things that we do, those, yeah, they, they definitely help. I'm not trying to put that down, but it's basically that connection with people. That's what I enjoyed the most. And later on, I, in my career as a nurse, you know, my most favorite thing was working with the geriatrics. I did home health and I would sit there for hours. I wasn't supposed to, but I sat there for hours and I would just listen to them. I would work holidays just so I could spend time with these elderly people who unfortunately didn't have their kids visiting them. So that was the right side of nursing. And then I actually went into, I worked at the uh, correctional office. Like I was a, the correctional facilities. I was a, actually a nurse in the penitentiary, a maximum security penitentiary. Oh, wow. And I saw all kinds of walks of life there. For I've worked men or for women? For men. Oh, wow. Okay. So as a woman, you're in there being a nurse for like, all right. Okay. Were you scared at all? <laughs> Were you scared? Were you like, or what was your, yeah. What was it like to be in there? It was different. I mean, you know, these were not your, you know, you did not want to be that sweet nurse that was holding their hand and stuff like that. You had to be tough. So I had to develop this whole new persona of just being like, you know, being 44011. I had to be a lot more tougher than I looked. I looked like a little chihuahua, just kind of like, you know, <laughs> setting boundaries with these grown ass men. But at the end of the day, no matter what they did, I actually, I made it a point not to look at their records. Because I wanted to still give the same quality of care. Mm. But I mean, I mean, it was hard. One of those moments that I can 
that really, that I take with me after leaving that place, despite all the other horror stories that I could share with you later at another time, there would be a lot of inmates that would leave. They would go up to my window. They would They would show up to my window before they got, not discharged, but they paroled out. They would knock on my window and they would say, hey, Resurrection, thank you. My tough girl self, I'm like, for what? Mm -hmm. Giving you drugs? (laughs) And they'd be like, no, for treating me like a human. Because everybody else treated me like I was a piece of shit, but you actually treated me like I was a human. Beautiful. You know? So that was, that was that. Then it's like, I worked in home health for a bit, somehow transitioned over to the administrative side of healthcare. Now I work behind the monitor, basically in the insurance department, which I enjoy because, you know, it's part of the medical system. So, you know, transitioning over to Reiki, that was when I started my spiritual journey, you know. A lot of people will laugh when I say how I, when I tell the story of how I fell into even, you know, or becoming more familiar with what Reiki was. While I was going through my messy divorce, I felt alone most of the time and I was left alone most of the time. So in order for me to sleep with really bad insomnia, I would actually watch different ASM artists. And there was one video that I came across, kind of weird, it's a lot of role-playing. One of the videos that I actually came across was Reiki. And I was like, wow, what is this woman doing? She's burning sage across? What is what is sage? So, you know, I was like, I don't know what this is, but I would like to try this in person. And it's like, I found somebody because... After my divorce, I moved to another city. I was blessed enough to find my Reiki master. Her name is Patty. Shout out to Patty. <laughs> and What's up, Patty? The very first, the very first session she did for me, I was hooked. I felt so much lighter because during that time, it was actually the year of 2020. I was like, "What is wrong with me?" I was going through my spiritual awakening. I didn't know what else to do. Like. I didn't want to see there. I didn't want to actually seek therapy at that time because I really wanted to, and this may not be a good thing, but I really wanted to figure my stuff out on my own. And I felt that this was, you know, this was the right, this was basically a good start to just like open myself up to all that. And then as far as body sculpting, I kind of just fell into that because I really wanted to add another or an additional modality into my Reiki healing. Because I was like, I have to offer a little bit more. I love making people feel good about themselves. And I mean, I'm a woman. I love beauty. Mm-hmm. And I love making other people feel beautiful about themselves. I might get a little bit of hate for this, but that's okay. I'm just being honest. So as far as surgery goes, I'm not one to encourage that. But I also, on the other hand, I do understand women want to improve how they look. And after doing extensive amount of research on body sculpting, I've grown more passionate about it because I've learned how it actually works. It's not just about making yourself feel good. And this works hand in hand with Reiki because like with Reiki, 
you have all of these things kind of like, you know, when you have all that negative energy, it's like stuck inside of you. And when you, you know, when you have a session, my objective is to just flush all of that out. If I can provide some sort of relief, that would be great. Now on the physical aspect side, that's pretty much what I'm doing with body sculpting. It's not just making somebody look snatched or chiseled, but it's also helping them to detox all of the, like make the fat cells, the toxins out of their body. And it's like, I know this is going to sound weird, but the most favorite, my favorite thing to hear from my clients, when I ask them, how do you feel? They're like, I've been seeing a lot. Good. (laughs) It works (laughs) for you. (laughs) That's where I'm at as far as all the different hats that I'm wearing. So I love that, right? Because they all have a common denominator and it's in service of helping, right? And helping specifically around the mind, around the body, right? Around like in the mind, really like just you being able to comfort somebody, right? Like that's, 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 that's warm, right? Like when that, when that lady asked you to just be there for her. Right. Sometimes that's it. So there's that love, that space, that nurturing nurse, cherry, right? That obviously shows up. And then inside of that, then it's like, all right, well, then how do I magnify that to now move energy and heal somebody? Right. And then from there, actually physically now using tools to be able to do that. I love that. And I feel how it is all in alignment. Right. So now you transition. So now how do we go into, how did we transition into this podcast? The Still I Rise. When did that come about? So the Still I Rise podcast, I was going through a lot during my divorce. I know that there was a lot of women that, you know, and, you know, even during those times, I was having friends that were like going kind of back and forth. Should I leave, you know, should I leave my spouse? Should I work it out? I don't really have the answers for that, but it's like, I felt that, you know, let me share my story. At first, I wasn't really in the proper mindset when I started that podcast. It was supposed to be just an audio journal for myself. I didn't think anybody would listen to it. I mean, if you listen to that podcast, I'm not the same cherry that I am today. (laughs) I mean, it's one of those things where like, when I started that podcast, I'm like, damn, I was going through some shit. <laughs> this is so much shit that I need to share this with people, you know? I mean, in that podcast, I it's it's literally just sharing what was going on during those times, like, you know, basically getting wanted visits or, you know what I mean? Just like even during that time I was still going through my journey with WFG. Yeah. So it was it was, it was actually, I haven't listened to it, but I think I need to listen to it just so I can, you know, gauge to see where I'm at now versus then. But it sounds to me like it was a really good coping mechanism. It was your opportunity to like release and to express and to let it out. And it wasn't necessarily about if people heard it or not. Rather, it was your tool. And I think sometimes that's that's good to keep in mind for people like that want to start a podcast, right? And it's like this and this expectation that like people need to listen. But to me, and, and this I actually learned from the person that inspired me to start my podcast, right? Which was Calvin. It was like, dude, sometimes I hop on a podcast. Really, it's for myself. Like if people listen, that's a plus. But like it's my opportunity just like once a week or twice a week to just be able to share. 
right? And I think that's what I'm hearing from you. What was still I rise was an opportunity for you to be able to prove to yourself, like, all right, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of all this stuff that's going on, I'm going to figure out an outlet to be able to stay and remain sane, right? And figure out a way to heal through it. So I think that's that's beautiful. And I think it highlights something there, right? It's again, it's inspiring because where oftentimes most people just bottle it all in, you had the courage to be vulnerable because it takes something, right? It takes something to be vulnerable, to put all your laundry, your dirty laundry out there, it, right? But, but it, but, it, but yeah. I'm sorry. The beauty about it is it actually helps a few other people. I mean, there was like, there wasn't a whole lot of listeners, but those five people mattered. You know, it's like those five people that reached out to me and told me, yeah, you know, I'm listening to your story. And some of them still follow me till this very day. And they're so sweet, you know? So it's like, if you can help one person, that even, that makes it even great, greater. I agree. I am with you 100% on that. And so again, I applaud you for taking that leap, right? And so now tell me about this spiritual awakening of yours. Now, how did that, how did that happen? So you have this podcast, <laughs> then you have this awakening, like how, tell me how that happens. So it was crazy because it's like, you know, during that time, of course, I was going through a lot. I was like, oh my gosh, I, and I've always been a depressed person, but I've never been diagnosed. So it's like, I am usually, I can pick myself out of depression. And I was like, what is going on with me? Now, mind you, I've already had Reiki done. I've already started burning sage. I've already started meditating. I already started like, you know, just, I started doing yoga. So I started to open myself up more. And then it's like, I noticed certain things that I used to enjoy. I didn't enjoy anymore. I was doing WFD at the time. And it's like, I was trying to be that, you know, that boss phase. You know, I was trying to be like that single mom and everything. I was using my single mom story as leverage. So I was really kicking my own ass. Like, you know, it's one of those things where I saw this thing the other day. It's saying burnout is not a badge of honor. If, uh, so that's what I was doing. Myself. And I couldn't kick myself out of depression one day. And I was like, what is going on with me? And it was so weird because I started to like, all these videos started showing up in my algorithm and it was called, it was about spiritual awakening. And then it was like the lady that was, I was watching, her name is Christina Lope. Lope. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she was talking about the five stages of spiritual awakening. And I was at that moment, I was what they would call the purge, the dark night. And I was like, Holy shit, when is this going to end? You know, and I was like, oh, my gosh, is my third eye opening because there's certain things that I'm feeling. There's certain energies that I'm feeling like certain being around certain people were making me it was making me anxious. So I was like, oh, my gosh. And you know how that is. It's like during the times of WFG, we were so used to being around people. We loved being around people. But for some reason, I just couldn't be around people anymore. I pretty much barricaded myself in my apartment for like two months. Nobody heard from me. And I was like, I just have to go through everything. So then, you know, I started realizing more and more about myself where I was like, take my time. And, you know, I just felt at that moment, I was no longer, I felt like I was not in alignment. I didn't know who I was going to become at that moment, but I knew that I was not in alignment with who I was supposed to become. 
And how did you, how did, all right. And so, and then what? And so you come to this realization, I'm not in alignment. <laughs> now what? <laughs> again? I mean, perfect. Like during that lockdown, it was perfect because I disappeared. And then that's when, you know, you reached out to me and bam. <laughs> okay. So, all right. So synchronicity, yeah. right? Like it's one of those things was like the teacher <laughs> will show up when the student is ready. Right. Exactly. So, you were ready. It's like all of a sudden I show up on your feet and I'm like, hey, there's this self-mastery course. There's this foundation program. You should really consider it. <laughs> it was it was it was perfect timing because like I said, I didn't have anybody like and I'm a firm believer, like when I'm feeling at my lowest, I just I stick to myself. As long as I know that I'm not having any dangerous thoughts, I stick to myself because I don't want anybody else influencing me to do, you know, whether it's good or bad. I want my decisions to be my own. So that's what made everything perfect because for the first time during that time, I was able to make a decision without asking anybody for validation. It was scary as hell, but it happened. Yeah. And that, I would say that that's one of the key things about the self mastery program that I sometimes often have to remind the participants that go through it. It's wait, wait, this isn't do what Sebastian tells you to do, <laughs> right? This is Sebastian's going to ask you what you want to do, right? And then from there, yeah. it's, you start to answer your own questions. You start to discover what you want. You start to inquire on what's really there for you, right? And so, yeah, I'm glad that you didn't see it as something like you had to do, but rather the freedom to really dive into, all right, what do you want? All right, and so you start taking the self-mastery program, and then what happens? When we started working on routine and that made a big difference with everything, you know, basically doing the whole highest self exercise really helped. I mean, okay. In the beginning, I'm like, wait, am I being grandiose if I'm writing this? You know what I mean? You're, you're second guessing yeah. yourself, but then it's like break out of that. And you're like, no, fuck this. I deserve the world. Like, you know what I mean? There are no limits. When you stop putting limits to your, to, you know, your wants and what you want to be, you know, what you want your highest self to be. That's it. Right. And isn't it, isn't it funny how it's like, it goes hand in hand, how our highest self is usually limited by our belief systems and our belief systems. Well, they're our belief. That's why we believe in them, but we don't realize that our belief systems is composed of limiting beliefs that interfere and block our actual highest potential, right? Because if somebody told us when we were five years old that we're not ever going to be grandiose or anywhere worthwhile or being grandiose is, is not good, you should humble yourself, right? And well, then what ends up happening is we create these stories that limit what we really think we or what we actually desire, but we've been shamed or guiltied into thinking that we shouldn't. So we should just live normal, mediocre lives and not really be the incredible beings that we're designed and born to be, right? And so again, this is, this is the work. It's reminding yourself and recognizing and for yourself, recognizing, oh, wow, that's limitation. Wait, I can't create my highest self. Oh, wait, I can't be grandiose. Oh, wait, I can't go after the things I want, right? And so... That's about we. So that was in 2021, 2020. 2020. So another thing I do have to add is about the self mastery class was basically doing this shadow work mm. because it's like, write it all down. You know, I mean, it's like you could think about it in your head, but when you actually write it down, you're kind of 
sports to like confront it. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like you're writing after crying, you know what I mean? And that's okay. You're supposed to. Yeah. And you know, I, I do have to say after doing that shadow work, it's like my life that I think it was there that basically my life turned around where it's like after like confronting the dark areas of my life, I was able to just, you know, shift my mindset. Yeah, because if I if I recall during that time, your relationship with your mom wasn't the greatest. There was a lot of battle with that, and there was still a lot of conversation with your ex at the time. And so there was still mm -hmm. processing through that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember that, right? And then since then, how, what's your relationship with your mom now? Oh my gosh, it's it's actually a whole lot better. She stayed here for two weeks, you nice. know, and um, for the first time yesterday. When she went to pick up the boys for the holidays, she just went up to me and she said, I am so proud of you. And I'm like, I've never heard that before. <laughs> I didn't say that, but I said, thank you. I'm going to take it. But in the internally, I was like, the little, the little like five-year-old Sherry was like, oh my God, that's what I needed this whole time. <laughs> so it's, you know, it, it just makes me happy to know that. And I told her this too. I was like, mom, I know I was, I was a pain in your ass. Like, I mean, it goes both ways, but I'm, I'm going to just, I'm just going to acknowledge what I did. <laughs> that was like, I know I was a pain in your ass, but all I have to say is I am so happy that you and I have a better relationship now. If, uh, there you go. I love that. And that's doing the work, right? That's doing the work. All right. And so, all right. And so you're transitioning out of this, you're doing all this healing work, you're doing all this, and then you get pregnant. Tell me about that. So Oh man! Prior, that, okay, okay. Yes, like I, when we, you and I took the the you know when I was in your program in 2020, I was a single mom. I was kind of like, I guess you could say a serial dater, but you know what I mean. A serial dater, you said. <laughs> okay. But, I mean, but, you know, it's one of those things, just kind of putting people on your cues, swiping right, <laughs> and uh, because. I just, at that time, I was like, okay, I really believe I couldn't find a good math because I wasn't my best self yet, you know? I was attracting the same people in different bodies. Mm -hmm. So I was like, nah, what's going on? You know what I mean? I was like, I need to work on myself before I even, you know what I mean? Before I even try to, you know, venture into the dating world. But I was like, man, there has to be I want to just be happy. I want to be happy with somebody. I want to be in a relationship, you know. And during the time, actually, I was exclusively speaking to Kevin. So it's like at that point, we didn't know where the relationship was going because it was still flourishing. It was still brand new. And then moving forward, that's what happened because I did want to have a child with, with Kevin. And that was something that we were really, you know, that was the goal. That's why we actually moved in together. You know, but it was just like in my highest self at that time, it was just like putting together a beautiful home with, you know what I mean? With the boys and Kevin and just making, you know, amazing memories. And then that was right there having a child. And then I got pregnant and, you know, I will be honest during this time. I don't know if it was the hormones. I don't know if it was the stress, but I wasn't my best self. I was always stressed out you know, but I was thankful that we got pregnant, you know? So, you know, during this pregnancy time, 
Like everything was great for the first four months. We found out the gender, you know, and that was like a happy little video that we did. The strange thing about this was prior to prior to our anatomy appointment, this is where they do the full body scan to make sure the baby's growing as he should be. I had a dream that I went to the appointment and the doctor told me that there was going to be complications in this pregnancy. And I had hoped that this was just, you know, a dream. Well, when we went to the anatomy scan at 19 weeks, the, the tech, the ultrasound tech was very quiet. It was awkward. And that's when they told us the news that I had low levels of fluid which is known as oligohydromnia, and the baby was growing, you know, at a very slow pace. That's what they call the intrauterine growth restriction. So basically, while the baby is still in the womb, for some reason, it's having a difficult time growing as, you know, as the time passes. So because I have low levels of amniotic fluid, the amniotic fluid is meant for you know, that's where the baby gets their nutrients. That's where they're able to, you know, pee and poop. So he wasn't getting enough of that. And that's what they were thinking caused, you know, the, the growth restriction. Right. Okay. And so, all right. And so, and then, all right. So you find out this news and how do you start to process this? Well, I got, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do this. Mm-hmm. at the time, but I started to do research on what we could do if there was anything, because I mean, the doctors were encouraging us to terminate the baby at 19 weeks. And I was like, there's a heartbeat. He's moving. Hell no. I I don't have that within me to do that. You know, Kevin and I decided not to do that. So I started to do a lot of research. I pretty much said, Google and fuck like you know what I mean all the medical like what is it med IMD or whatever because I was like doctors are very biased and I'm gonna go with hoping so where do you go for that you go on forums Mm. you know it may or may not work but you know what you're you're gonna look for people that have experienced that so it's like I was looking for people who experienced it I went on TikTok I went on YouTube, not much on YouTube, but there was a lot on TikTok. And then I also found a group, a support group on Facebook. And it's like, there were some horror stories. There were some happy stories, but I wanted to keep going forward. So Kevin and I purchased the Doppler, which is basically a little device that you can use to listen to the baby's heartbeat. So we could check on him every night. That was also going to help ease my anxiety. And while I was going through this, nobody knew because I didn't want to tell anybody that I knew and that I was, you know, close to that I set up a private, not a private, but I set up a TikTok that said Hudson's journey. And I started to share updates on what was going on. I shared our story from day one. And up till this day, not a lot of people know about this TikTok. Like my circle of friends, they don't know it because I really wanted my goal for this was to share with other mothers, 
you know, because maybe my story might be inspiring. Maybe it'll give them hope because for me, I was so upset with the doctors. Like, fuck you guys, excuse my language, but fuck you guys for telling us to terminate our babies. So I wanted to provide hope and that's, that's how I coped with it. I did everything I could. This might sound ridiculous to others. But it's like I drank a gallon of water a day to stay hydrated. I took liquid IV. I took L-arginine to help with basically the, the blood flow. I did everything that I could outpatient until my very last appointment. It was, this was after Thanksgiving, so a year ago. They told me, Terry, you have no fluids. And your baby only grew two ounces in the last two weeks. And I was able to manage my fluids or whatever it was I was doing, I managed it for eight weeks and I did whatever I could on my end. But then once they told me you have no more fluids and your baby hasn't grown, I was like, okay, I'm going to have to surrender because I'm going to do whatever it takes to save my son. So long story short, I was in the hospital for 30 days and I didn't know what was going to happen. Everything was unknown. You know, it's like I, this was now I had to tell my family like, okay, I'm going into the hospital. I don't know. You know, I have to tell my, my, my teenage sons, I'm sorry. I have to go to the hospital. Are you going to be there for Christmas? I don't know. Are you going to be there for new Year's? I don't know. When are you going to get out? I don't know. You know, we're just going to have to make the best of everything. You know, it was hard for me to keep a straight face and not break down because it wasn't easy for me to leave my family during the holidays. But we were there from December 2nd up until January 1st when husband decided to bless us with his presence. But consistent being bed rest, not walking for 30 days. You didn't give up on him. You got to see him. You got to experience him. You got to be with him. Yeah. So now, Tell me about that whole process emotionally and spiritually. While I was in the hospital before he was born, I stayed hopeful. It was hard because I went through some depression because I was like, of course, it's like the fear of the unknown. It doesn't even matter how much help you get there because it's like, while I was there, the nurses there, they were amazing. You know, they they were as helpful as they could be. A few of them cried with me. A few of them literally held me while I broke down. You know, whenever I would see like Kevin and the boys, they would visit. Whenever they would leave, I would feel so sad because I'm like, I'm I'm not able to see my, you know what I mean? My, My kids are leaving me behind. You know, I, every day I would try my best to like pray. And I look forward to each new no matter what it was going to be, I would promise myself it's going to be a good day. There was a time where I literally just, I freaked out because I was told I was going to go home and I was ready to go home. But, you know, I guess Hudson was like, nope, we're not going home. And I was like, I'm going to be here for longer. Then I have to shift my mindset and understand that it's better that we're here and it's better that Hudson's still in my stomach. But when, when he when the nurse had told me that morning that we were going to have to deliver him because he wasn't moving as he usually does. And they saw that as like a risk. So they were like, okay, we're going to do an emergency C-section. That was the scaredest 
I have ever been. I was trembling when they took me into the operating room and that was the first time I've ever been cut open. But, you know, I mean, that was the least of my worries. I was more worried about whether or not Hudson was going to make it. And the beautiful thing was after they, it took them three minutes to cut me open and pull him out. Mm -hmm. And when we heard that cry, I just remember like just crying tears of like relief because I was like, okay, he's going to be okay. And, you know, the doctor was telling me like his heart rate, because the heart rate for babies is supposed to be like a hundred and over his heart rate was at 60 but this kid was like fleet like just you know fleeing and just you know what I mean just fighting so he was like literally born fight you know and they're like yeah he's he's something else he's really something else so we didn't see him until like the next morning because I was you know I was drugged up from the waist down I couldn't move and we were so scared we were told he had down syndrome you know and we were told We didn't know what to expect when we went down there. We went down there and it's just like the worries of everything. Just, I didn't care that he had Down syndrome anymore. What mattered to me was he survived and I was able to take him home. And when I saw him, he was, he was this tiny little thing. He was basically a foot long and he was only a pound and, you know, a pound and some odd ounces. It was so tiny. It was so scary to like touch him. But when I got to touch him and I got to see his face, he looked like a little miniature version of Kevin. I was like, that's my baby. The hardest part, Sebastian, was going home. Yeah. And leaving him there. Yeah, because you couldn't take him with you. Yeah. So a lot of anxiety during that time. I wasn't ready to go home. Yeah. Yeah. But you went home and then what happened? So. You go home and now start this process of now having to go visit him and go to like, keep on. Basically, I had to learn how to integrate my norm into or integrate this into, you know, my life. And let's keep in mind, I haven't been home. When I first got home, I thought I was going to be ecstatic to be home. I would see the girls. The boys were still at my sister's for the holiday. but. I felt like a stranger in my own house. I Everything was like kind of foreign to me because Hogue Newport was my home for 30 days. And this is how I know that, you know, I was going through some emotional trauma because like Kevin actually, until Kevin plugged in the Christmas lights, and mind you, this is like January 6th. When Kevin plugged in, plugged in the Christmas lights, that's when I, I was like, oh, I'm home. Because it was how it was before I, I went to the hospital. And it was then that I realized how affected I was by this whole, like, situation. We got to see Hudson through, like, a little mommy NICU camera. But it wasn't good enough for me. First night, I started crying. And, you know, Kevin was comforting. He was telling me he's going to be okay. And we wanted so much to believe he was going to be okay. And he was okay for two weeks. You know, we we got to visit him. That was our routine. Like, you know, I didn't want to go alone for some reason. I could have gone during the day. And if there was anything that I could change, I probably would have gone more during the day. But I think it was, I was afraid to hear bad news. So I 
prevented myself from going during the day and I would wait for Kevin at night. So we would just visit him at night. I didn't know what to do with him because it's like, we're just looking at him. I'm like, we can't, we can barely touch him. One of the nurses, sweet lady was like, have you thought about reading to him? And I was like, no, I thought about getting books, but we can read to them because I thought it's supposed to be quiet around here. She said, no, you should read to him. So I started looking up different NICU books and certain things that you can read to your baby. And so, you know, we got a few books and, you know, we actually befriended some of the uh, moms that were in the NICU. They were gracious enough to give us some books. They were personalized. So, you know, whenever you're in these situations and somebody just is so generous, you're, you know what I mean? It's, it's very touching. And it's like, we were just kind of like rooting for each other's babies, but he did so good for those two weeks. I was so proud of him. He was such a big little fighter. Like he got off of the breathing tube. He wasn't on the ventilator. He had like this little beanie on and it looked like a little football helmet. And it's like, I still have these videos and he has like this, the way he was breathing. It was just, it's sad, but you're just like, oh my God, you little you little trooper, you're just chugging along, you know? And it's like, a lot of people might think I'm crazy for this, but I would feel like I felt so connected to Hudson during those times. Like, even though it's like, we can't really see his personality because of the connection I had with him. I felt his little personality. I knew him. I knew exactly what he wanted and what would piss him off, you know? The nurses would be like, oh, yeah, we have to give him morphine because he was getting touchy. He doesn't like being touched. I said, oh, no, he doesn't like being touched. And he doesn't like dirty diapers. You know, he was feisty. And a lot of Down syndrome babies, Down syndrome, you know, kids with or like anybody that has Down they're sassy. So I know this kid was sassy. And we had this little saying for him was like, I was like, Hudson is very extra. He's extra because he was born on, on January 1st. He has to be a New Year's baby. He's like, you guys are going to celebrate me whether you like it or not. The New Year's coming in, I'm extra. Mm-hmm. He's so extra, he had to have an extra chromosome and become a, a Down syndrome baby. So this is how we basically, no matter how shitty the situations were, we always tried to make light of it. Yeah. There was a time where, like, so he was doing good. And I was like, yes, my baby's coming home. That was, like, my mentality. My baby's coming home. I had a dream that something had happened to him and I woke up and I was like talking in my sleep. I was like, not my baby, not my baby. That very next day I get a call saying that he has to be reintubated and he has to be put back on the, um, on the ventilator. So they always say it's a dance in the NICU. One step forward, two steps back. Like basically sometimes you feel like you're not going to get anywhere. So the doctors reassured me this may not be the biggest like fall, but unfortunately it was, you know, it's like I had to sit there and it's like, I haven't done bedside nursing in years, but listening to these doctors talking about in like the way they take care of like little, like preemies versus an adult, it's different. So I had to learn the lingo. I had to learn that a blood transfusion wasn't a big deal versus how it would be for an adult. There was a lot of things I needed to learn. There was a lot of, you know, what does this medication do? What are the side effects? 
It doesn't, and at this point, because you're trying to keep your child there, it doesn't even matter what the side effects are. Yeah. So it was a bit frustrating when the doctors would be, because I would, I, I felt like I was robbed of being able to be a mom because I wasn't able to hold my child. I wasn't able to feed my child. I wasn't able to change this, my child's diapers. But once he got bigger, I was able to change his diapers, but it wasn't the, you know what I mean? I had to do it through like the holes of the, the isolate. And it's like, I had to feed him through a tube, but I would take that, you know? And it's just like, I, that became my norm. Machines beeping, you know what I mean? Just like, just the sounds of every machine. And whenever it would beep, I would freak out. So he actually, once he started doing poorly, they told me that they had, he had to be transferred over to the Children's Hospital of Orange County. And honestly, watching him get transferred was probably another part of my trauma because seeing all that equipment and seeing like all the devices that he needed to be hooked up to, it was hard to watch. And there was like six different staff from talk just to transport him. It was a critical care transportation. But I looked at the nurses, no matter how scared I was, and I said, hey, look, looks like Hudson Stress Limo and Entourage is here. I'm like, you're so extra, baby. And then they're like, he's going to get a private suite. I said, oh, that's cool. He's like, they're like, so you could sleep there if you want. I said, okay, perfect. And I was so scared because I was like, what, what's next? I don't know these staff. But, you know, I, I was trying my best to just calm myself down and tell myself that these are the best of the best. So they know what they're doing. It was a lot to take in. But before he actually got transferred, there was something that was going on with his heart. And I was so hopeful. And I said, you know what, let me go ahead and just kind of feel his energy. I coasted my hand over his heart and I closed my eyes and I felt white light. And what came to me was too pure for this earth. Mm. I didn't want to believe that. I wanted to just pass that off. as like, no, you're being, you know, you're being woo-woo and crazy right now. So moving on to the NICU journey over in in chalk within few a few days like his doctor who was one of his doctors in hope calls me at three o'clock in the morning and asks me cherry how far are you guys because i'm concerned about his survi- him surviving tonight imagine getting that call at three o'clock in the morning i didn't sleep i called the nurse because the nurse was like we're working on him we'll call we'll call you back so when she finally called me back after like an hour she told me He's okay. He's stable, but we had to actually put him, you know, on vasopressors, which was epinephrine and norepinephrine. If you're familiar with those two, that's actually adrenaline. So that's usually what they give to people when their heart stops beating. And at the time, I was very much in denial of how much support Hudson was needing. So after that, I was there every morning. And I would come back home for dinner with my kids. And then Kevin and I would go back and we would read to him every night. 
it was a ritual. But, you know, I saw this poor baby's body go from, you know, hell and back. But during those times, it's like, you know, I read to him and I believe that he knew I was there. He would hold our hand. He would make little, you know, he would just show us that he, you know, he knew we were there. And it's like, I would whisper to him, please don't leave. There's so much love I want to show you. Please don't leave. You know, it was, it was a lot to take in during that time. Like every night I would, I would look at the camera. I would call, how's he doing? I would get into the fight. I would get into arguments with, with the staff because they're like, oh, well, he's really sick. I would tell them, listen, I know my baby's really sick. I just need to know what the hell is the update. You know, I had another vision while I was in the NICU. This was when he was doing really, really bad. I saw his name on an urn or on a tombstone, and I tried to shake it off. And then, you know, we just kept going with the visitations. The boys got to actually see him for the first time because the medical staff felt that he wasn't going to make it. I loved it, but I hated it. I hated the fact that they were telling me that we were almost at the end. So during the very last few days, a doctor came in and he was like, yeah, there's nothing more we can do, you know, because the nurse was asking him, what else can we do? He said, there's nothing else we could do. And the nurse asked me, did you hear that? I said, yeah. They thought I was weird because I was so calm about it. I just curled up in the recliner next to him and I closed my eyes. And then I saw his name on a children's book. Hmm. I got a vision. And I was like, oh, I took that as God's going to, you're going to come out of this. I wish that was the case. But we had a meeting. They were saying that there was one more thing left that they could do, which was to give him steroids because he was so swollen. These steroids were supposed to help constrict the vessels so that way less fluid goes in. Well, after that meeting, they officially told me that he was actively dying. So this is when I had to make a decision. And it was tough because his dad, Kevin, not in the medical field, not really understanding what's going on, was still in denial. And I was in the grieving stages, basically acceptance, anger. We were on two different levels and it was really hard. So we had to make a decision. I had to have the medical staff talk to him because I said, I'm not in the position to do that. I need you guys to talk to him. So they did. And, you know, we just kind of sat there in, you know, just very somber vibes. What do we do? You know, we're holding on to his little hand, like, come on, fight. And I told Kevin, I said, you know, I think we need to have the family come over. So the family came, long story short, he waited for everybody. And when everybody was there, his, his vital signs went up. That's how he would communicate when he was happy. His vital signs would go up. And I thought it was, it went up so much to the point where I thought that he was up for one more fight. But he's like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> and three o'clock in the morning was when they, they woke us up and they said that his heart rate was going down. And they had asked me prior, what do you want to do? before he dies. And I said, I never got to hold him when he was born. So I would like to hold him and see him off to his next adventure. And that was when as a mom, 
I had to accept that it was time to let my baby go. Mm-hmm. And I told them during the meeting that I'm not ready to let my baby go. And when that does happen, I'll know. So a social worker during that time asked me, you remember when you, when you, when you said that, I said, I know it's time to let him go. So during that process, I had to not only think about, well, I wasn't even thinking about how uncomfortable it was going to be for me or how hurtful it was going to be for me to hold my baby because death freaked me out. I wanted him to know that I was there. I wanted him to know that he was loved. I had wished because they had put him on paralytics. And when you're on paralytics, you can't move. I had wished that he wasn't on paralytics. I was going to request for that, but I knew that if they didn't put him on that, he would die. Mm -hmm. And I wanted as much time with my baby as I could possibly have before he passed. So thankfully they allowed me to, to hold him with the ventilator on. It was tough. It took about five to six people to put him on me. And I remember when I would hold him in the, you know, when he was still doing good, That was like my favorite thing, skin to skin bonding. But I knew that this time was going to be the last time I got to hold him. You know, it's just, I was trying my best while I was holding him to just take everything in, memorize every detail of him, his feet, his body, like, you know what I mean? Just his little body, his his face. And we did everything we possibly could. That was the first time I got to kiss my son. And I never thought that my first time would be my last. But it was, um, as sad as it was, it was really beautiful because I know as a nurse, I know that these parents don't always have, you know, they don't, they're not blessed with this because like sometimes it's like the kids will die and they're not there in the room, but we got to be there with him. We got to be there with him when he transitioned. And, you know, that was the biggest gift that, you know, I, he was there for us. We were there for him. And I think it's really important for people, for parents, and not just with babies, but to understand the transition. Like, you know, like when you have to make this decision, it's always good to do it with grace rather than, you know, I think a lot of it is centered around love because you're, 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 you're giving so much love to this person. You don't want them to go, but you got to stop and think, okay, it's not about me right now. How would they, how would, what can I do for, for my baby before he goes? What's the last thing I can do? Beautiful thing about it. Sorry, I'm like babbling, but the beautiful thing about these last moments, as shitty and as dark as they were, I was able to knit for Christe a blanket. That was the first thing I did for him when I found out he was a boy. I picked the yarn and I started crusading it and I crusaded it while I was in the hospital. I crusaded while I was beside him talking with you and I left it in the closet. And when he had passed, they asked me if I wanted to wrap him up in a blanket or if I had a blanket. And I said, well, actually I do have a blanket and I pulled it out. It still had the crusade needle on it. I knotted it up and he, he was wrapped in it we were able to wrap him in there. So the first thing that I was able to do for him happened to be the last thing. 
that I did for him too. So it was a full circle. And ironically too, that's the last thing that, cause I was going to, Kevin had asked me when we left, do you want to take it with us? I said, no, I want him to be wrapped in it because they're going to put him in a freezer and I want him to stay warm. Mm. So when we retrieved his remains from the mortuary, I was going to not ask them take that blanket, but I actually, my request to them was please give me back that blanket. That was the last thing that he was wrapped up in. That was the last thing, you know what I mean? His scent is going to be on there, you know? So the little things that I have to remember him by, it's there. So look, this is not easy for anybody, right? For anybody. And you've done such an incredible job at processing all of it, of continuing to stay positive, like to stay in this state of, all right, just lighthearted, to stay in the sense of love, to stay in the sense of hope, right? Like that's not easy. And then to transition through that. So I think, I think the audience could really appreciate your grieving process how what like what came from that right because there's hudson's gift there's the podcast there's the book that you're out to create like there's so much things that 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 normally somebody would be like this was such a tragic event and just that well you've been able to see it as yes it was really dramatic really hard and there was a purpose there's a reason behind it and you get to keep that legacy moving forward so I'd love for you to share a little bit about that. So when it comes, the reason why I came up with Hudson's gift was because, I mean, this little man, this little spirit of, little ball of energy, he's extra. So he doesn't want his story to end in a NICU. So <laughs> what I get from my son is, you got to keep telling my story and you got to do something else about that you know basically you got to make it impactful because even though he was just this little infant he touched a lot of lives like as I said I had that TikTok there were so many other mothers that were like I was following your story what happened you know so you know I when I when I see mothers get discouraged I tell them don't get discouraged everybody's story is different just because we didn't take our baby home, it doesn't mean that you won't. And hope is so, so important to keep going because it's like, you know what? Those babies, even though you think they don't feel it, they know you're there. They feel your hope. So don't give up on them. That's the best thing you can do when your baby is in there fighting. And if baby doesn't make it, it doesn't mean that it was for nothing. Because that was my fear. I thought that I was going to lose faith and I would feel that it was for nothing. But this is where I talk about finding your dark, finding your magic through pain. You're not going to find magic when it's sunny outside. You're not going to find, you know what I mean? You're not going to, you're not going to have a magical epiphany when everything in your life is going good. So it's like when you take this darkness, you know, and you, you heal from it because it's like, you've got to go through some shit to heal. You know what I mean? You've got to go through some really hard and ugly shit to heal. So it's like, why would you waste that pain? Take that pain with you and try to light the torch 
to heal somebody else. So like for Hudson's gift, because that's like I've been talking about this for quite some time. I was like, I'm going to do something about this. And that's the one thing I have to say. It's like, write it down. For the love of God, just write it down and it'll all come to you. And it'll all come into place when the timing is right. So, I mean, luckily I was like nervous. I'm like, okay, because I want to do something. I knew for a fact that after I got out of the hospital, I wanted to do something for moms that are, you know, that are stuck on bed rest. Like I was at hope and I wanted to do something for the parents. I was only going to do for bed 11 in hope and for 80 in truck. And I'm happy to say that one of the books that I actually read to Hudson every day, I got in touch with the author and, you know, she was touched by Hudson's story. I basically had, you know, let everybody know on my social media that I was putting together care packages for Hudson's gift. And she reached out and she said, I would love to send you more books and donate Hudson's gift. So I'm so happy for that. You know, this woman also lost her, you know, not lost, I'm sorry, who had a son in the NICU and he's doing great. But it's like that feeling never left her. And she felt so empowered to share her story by making a book. And that's so beautiful to me. And after Hudson passed, I reached out to her. I let her know. I was like, your words will always stay with our family. Like I have it on my, I have it on my little chain here. It says so teeny, so tiny. His urn says so teeny, so tiny. You know, I, I told her that the, that book of yours was Hudson's words of affirmation. So I was like, everybody that's in the NICU should know about your book. So it's like, I'm excited because like now I can, you know, once those books come in, I can put together a care package. And so the other night I came up with a reason of why we're doing this. Okay. Every year, you know, Hudson is not going to have a gift. We're not going to be able to give him a tangible gift. So what can we do? The best thing that we can do for Hudson is to honor his name and his mem and his memory. So as a gift, we're going to give to other people. So technically, even though we're giving to other people on behalf of Hudson, it's Hudson's gift. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that. And that's oh. the name of the nonprofit, correct? Yes. So that's going to be the first step of that, you know, and then as the time progresses, you know, we'll figure out more things that we can do to make an impact on, you know, on these moms and on these, like, you know, these, these preemies, you know, it's, I think that like during these times, you know, especially having to experience that, I, I, I asked myself, okay, what would these moms need in order to feel better? You know, when you're stuck in that hospital, you know, you're, it's the holidays. I mean, I, I got a little care package too, but I was like, but you know what? I want to do more than just cookies and, and snacks, you know, how about some self-care stuff? Yes, no, maybe some words of affirmation. Gonna be okay. Personalized notes. Yeah, I love that, right? And it's all a matter of like again, not having it be just something that happened, but rather because it happened. Look now, what gets to unfold and the lives that get to get impacted, right? Through Hudson's gift, and that's beautiful. 
right? Like that's, yeah. it's, so I kind of want to highlight that because Cherry, like to go through what you've gone through, through the divorce, through all of the struggles, through being a single mom to, all right, now finding this, this man and then creating a family and then having to go through this heartache, but then not stopping there and saying, all right, I'm going to keep moving forward. Like this level of resilience, like, like that is so powerful and so respectful and so admirable. Right. And so it's like, how do you keep doing it? Like what keeps you keep moving forward? You know, just to be honest, while I was going through the NICU journey, what kept going on in my mind? And, you know, I mean, I could have been like, oh, my gosh, why do all these bad things keep happening to me? Yeah. But what through my mind was I needed to go through all of this shit in order for me to be strong enough to sustain the worst thing that could ever happen to a parent, and that's losing a child. So all of these things that happen, and this might sound very cliche, but one thing that I do want, and I hope that, you know, the listeners will, you know, this will resonate with some of them. We go through so much bad shit in our lives, but it doesn't mean that we're being punished. You know what I mean? It's just an experience. I know this sounds horrible for me to say, like after losing a child, I've done my grieving. I'm still doing my grieving. But the one thing that I can say is I have no anger towards the things that I had to go through. These were things that these are experiences. This is just part of this part of life. And these things, we don't really get to pick and choose what these events are going to be but these are the these are the events that shape us to become the better versions of ourselves cliche but i'm going to be honest with you this is just this is just how it's been for me after going through so much shit and again i'm so proud of you i'm proud of you because you continue to demonstrate what it means to master yourself master your emotions and not let the circumstance dictate your dictate your inner state but rather your inner state is going to stay grounded in the midst of whatever the circumstance is and it's this continuous growth continuous process of you continuing to like you said become the best version of yourself right and so i've seen you like we started our work again this year and I've seen you from the beginning of this year to where you are now when it's just like, it's mind blowing to see the impact that you continue to go. It's like nonstop. And now how you get to influence your kids, how you get to in influence Kevin, right? How you are being this light and continuing to be this light and it's transferring into everyone around you, right? And in the midst of that, like here you are, like you just launched a new business right the blue dahlia energy healing and sculpting like do you want to say a little bit about that before we go ahead and close out sure you know this is definitely like i i never thought this would happen like i never thought that like after everything that we went through i put everything on hold i started reiki you know two years ago and like I said, write it down for God's sake, because it will fall into place. Everything just fell into place the way it should have. This, and we talked about this, you know, I have to ask myself, is this a distraction versus a focus point? 
because even we, you know, I've come to realize and just identify that it's a focus point. And it's basically, and the reason why it's a focus point, because I feel that it's been bringing out the best of me. I feel happier in the morning. I feel like I'm accomplishing something. It's a little bit, you know, it's, it's going to take time to build and I'm not in a big rush, but it's like, I, I just love connecting with people. You know, I love being able to heal, help others heal. And while I'm doing that, I'm healing myself. You know, just when you get like that, it's that, how do I say this? It's that energy exchange, you know, just being able to kind of plug into other people for a little bit and just learn their story, you know, and I never imagined that this is where I would be right now. I thought this was going to take some time, but, you know, with all the work that we've been doing and it's, you know, it's unexpected, like. You know, lately I've just been busy because I was like, oh, I can't do that. I have a client. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a beautiful, you know, it's like every part of, you know, we were talking about this before you were saying like the colors, the emails, everything, you know, it's just branding yourself. You know, I, you know how we talk about like, how are you telling your story? I don't want to be that. I don't want to tell that story that I'm a depressed person anymore. Wow. You know, my story now is, I'm a flourishing Dahlia. Dahlias represent new beginnings. I love that. Cherry, you are an inspiration and you continue to be an inspiration. And I look forward to how you continue to build your business, how Hudson's gift continues to evolve and continues to impact people, just everything you've got going on. And I know that there's a lot of women and and just parents in general that can possibly potentially really connect to your story and would love to be able to connect with you. How can they reach you? Is there a specific way they can reach you? Obviously, I'll, I'll put your link on the description. But here, would you like to share how they can reach you? Well, you can find me on Blue Dahlia on my Instagram. I'm so bad. I don't even know my own Instagram. <laughs> and, and that's okay. You know how I can always put it in the description. Blue Dahlia. Okay. underscore mind and body and you can send a dm on there beautiful is there any last things you'd like to share with the audience before we close out i just want to say you know if you're feeling if you're feeling like you're stuck in darkness use that to your advantage if you're feeling pain use that to your advantage don't feel the pain of course feel the pain but do your best to shift your mind to use that pain to be like the nause or that extra spark of your power. That pain is going to help you ignite your power. I can promise you that. I love that. Right? Not letting your pain kill you, but letting that be the reason it motivates you. It lights that fire. It ignites that spark within. Right? I love that. How do we turn that, that pain into the spark? and have it be the thing that really takes it to the next level. Cherry, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you thank so much. Thank you for having me, now, and thank uh, you for your guidance. You know that it's, 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 it's an honor. It really is. It's an honor to, to have your trust and to be side by side with you throughout this whole process. And I really do appreciate you trusting me in this process. And I thank you for doing the work and not quitting and not giving up. 
Like, again, you, you are an inspiration to me. Sometimes as a coach, I don't know who's being coached, if the coach or the participants coaching the coach. Oh, because, look, sometimes it really is inspiring to see the people that I get to work with. And you were definitely one of those people that, that I truly admire just because of your ethic, your work ethic, like your commitment, your heart is so pure. You just really just want the best for other people. And, and, it's, and it's beautiful. So with that, thank you, Cherry, for this incredible conversation where we really got to dive in with the importance of resilience with what it means to transform, right? In the midst of chaos and what it means to really have this level of self-mastery to keep moving forward in the midst of hard things, right? In the midst of really hard things, right? And so I believe, Cherry, that you really are a testament of the power of the human spirit, right? Like despite facing challenging personal experiences, right? You've been able to find the solace and the strength through your spiritual and self-mastery practice. Like this is what's helped you keep moving forward and you haven't quit, right? So for everyone listening, I think Cherry's story really does serve as a reminder that no matter how difficult life may seem, there is always potential for growth and transformation. And when we learn to embrace our struggles as the catalyst for empowerment, and keep working towards that self-mastery, magic happens. Yes, so Cherry, again, I want to express my deepest, deepest gratitude for joining us today and for your time and for your vulnerability, right? Like really in your insights and just like recognizing that your journey is an inspiration. And to those that are listening, thank you for tuning in. I know that we, this is probably the longest episode (laughs) (laughs) This is probably the longest episode, but I think it was well worth it. I think it was necessary, right? And so, again, thank you for tuning in, for staying connected as we have way more incredible episodes coming your way. Remember, every Wednesday. So keep in mind that even in the darkest moments, there's always, always, always a spark waiting to be ignited. So please, please, please keep seeking growth and empowerment. And until next time, Take care and keep igniting that spark with me. Boom!